Okay, Exodus 30. You heard Asia, my friend, read a handful of excerpts, uh, very technical, similar to where we were last week and the week before. We're dealing with the tabernacle. We're dealing with uh, what priests wear and the tools that they use and how do they get consecrated. And like Tyler told you guys last week, what kind of underwear are they allowed to wear? God is very specific with his people about what he intends in order for them to be ready to worship him the right way. This is arguably the last chapter in Exodus that you might consider to be pure law. So to some of you, maybe that's a relief. I don't know. Uh, It may be exciting to you that we've been in the law of the Old Testament. Maybe you're just eating it up. You're like the psalmist who says, God, your law brings me to life. I love it. I can't get enough. Probably the majority of us prefer the narrative passages of Scripture. They're a little easier to understand. And so I want you to understand, if you can just maybe tap in, just drill deep with me today one more time. We're going to jump over Exodus 31. We won't be there next week. We're going to save that for the last sermon of the series to go with a handful of other chapters that that deal with it. But we're going to go to Exodus 32 next week, and we're going to be back in the narrative portion of, of Scripture. And things are going to get crazy really fast. And if we're not aware of the law that God has given his people, if we don't know what we were supposed to be sort of gleaning out of all these laws, Exodus 32 is not going to make sense. God's going to seem very angry, very harsh, very violent in a way that doesn't make sense to us unless we can tap what these chapters are trying to teach us. So, two weeks ago, we studied the layout of the tabernacle. Maybe you remember that. My big concept for you was that the way the tabernacle is built and designed functions as a map that leads us back to Eden, where we came from. That the thing that we live our lives looking for is not really out in front of us. It's not a matter of more ingenuity, more design choices, more and better options, more collaboration, more mental energy and imagination. Those things won't ultimately lead us where we want to go. The thing that we long for, we've lost. We already had it once. It was Eden with God. Not just that we had to live in a garden, but that God formed and fitted a place that fit us perfectly and that we fit perfectly, that fit our purpose perfectly. That there was no need for us to have to worry about all the tyranny of little stuff that bothers us all day long. Those things were handled so that we could put our sole focus on God. That we would know him. That we would worship him because we know him. Because if you know him, you worship him. When you finally meet him, he's everything to you. You love him in a way that you don't have to try anymore. He draws you. He's magnetic. You come into his orbit. You never want to leave. But so much of our modern life is designed to keep us out of that orbit. So that's where we were. The tabernacle is a map that leads us home. Last week, Tyler Wolf further expanded on Jesus as the fulfillment of the tabernacle and especially the prophet, excuse me, the priest's office, the high priest Aaron and his sons, the regular priests, as fulfillment of the symbolism of the foreshadowing of the law. And he did that by zooming us in, Exodus 28 and 29, on the consecration process. How does a regular old guy who was born as a slave in Egypt become the high priest of God? who's going to stand in this one room of the tabernacle where nobody else can go. What does that guy have to go through to be equipped to do that the right way? And what should he wear? And as he wears those things, what do they represent? Now, if you're like me, the level of symbolism that's present here can get a little bit exhausting. It can be challenging that every detail of the robe, the pomegranates, the bells, the breastplate, the two secret stones that live inside, this stuff can feel really mysterious. And we can start to go, is there really meaning in this? Is this just people in 2022 trying to read meaning back into a thing that had cultural significance then so that we can feel connected to it, so we can kind of tell ourselves it's this sort of pseudo-magic thing that God set up? But if we can really take the, the modern concepts that we have of communion and baptism, so we think about those things in a certain way, if we can take our mindset about that stuff, which we, we're comfortable with that relationship, we understand what those things represent, what they mean, 
If we can take that mindset and bring it back into the Old Testament, I think, I think we'll be equipped to handle these things. So let me tell you what I mean by that, because that may be a new idea for you. For us as New Testament believers, we have two ordinances, two things that God has ordained that he's given to his local church that they need to participate in on a regular basis. One of them is baptism. At True North, we believe that baptism is participatory. That means that you who are sitting out there are not an audience. You are members of what is happening. You are affirming, you are weighing, you are in prayer, you are encouraging the person who is submerged in water, and as they are submerged, you are reminded yourself of what Jesus did for you, that you needed to be washed and cleansed, but more than that, that a version of you that used to exist needed to die so that God could make a new you, and that new you is the you that lives in God's kingdom. Same thing with communion. When we gather for communion, we commune. Uh, The craziest thing happened last time we took communion at the end of January, I think it was maybe two weeks ago. We took communion here at this service, and then I got in my car and drove to the East Campus like I do every week so I could go and preach over there. And at the East Campus, we still feel a little bit like two churches, just so you guys know. We're we're trying, okay, but it's the blended family thing. You like your siblings that came along with your mom who you've known your whole life, but this new stepdad and his kids, not sure, not sure yet. It takes some time. And this amazing thing happened where we didn't put a bunch of extra emphasis on people getting to know each other. We didn't take 20 minutes and go around the room and share our name. We could have done that stuff. But we took communion. And when we took communion, though nobody who administered communion loaded it up with this meaning, as soon as we were done, we pray, we sing one song, the service is dismissed, and suddenly everybody is engaging with everybody. And there was no difference. It's not that one hyper uh, charismatic person showed up who's really easy to get to know and they just worked the room and got everybody connected. There is a spiritual significance to communion that really does bind us together. It makes us who are many into a body that is one. So we get that. We get that baptism is a thing that we do because it's right, but it also represents something else. And we get that communion is a thing that we do because God said to do it, but it also represents something else. There's meaning in it for us. And so when we turn our attention to the tabernacle system, that's our mindset. It's not trying to pick apart what does the fine detail of this thing represent as much as it is what is the meaning of it and why does God think it's important to bake meaning into these sort of rites and rituals that don't make a lot of sense otherwise. For instance, the lamb of sacrifice. Tyler hit on this last week. Twice a day, the priest would offer a lamb in the morning and in the evening. As the sun rose and as it set, That lamb of sacrifice, if we take that lens with which we understand baptism and communion and we ask ourselves, okay, the lamb is a lamb, so it matters, but it means something more. What does it mean? Well, a lamb is spotless. A lamb is without flaw. The lamb is supposed to be communicating to you and I that when the final sacrifice eventually arrives, whoever or whatever that may be, it will have to be spotless. It will have to be pure. The lamb is never less than a lamb, but it is more than a lamb. It's not just that God hates lambs, right? And and it's not like, it matters to God, obviously, that the sacrifice is not a dog or a snake or a cow or an oyster or something else that God's people could find. He wants a lamb because that lamb uniquely represents something that is significant to him. But for you and I, if we think about that for a while, what we realize is, is that the real sacrifice who's coming, the sacrifice the lamb points to, pretty much has to be God himself. I mean, even if we lived in the Old Testament, here's, here's where things get challenging for us. When we have baptism and communion, we don't just stop in the symbolic meaning. We go all the way to Jesus, and then we go, okay, I know Jesus, so I get what this is about. I get why, okay, Jesus was buried, so that's why I go under the water. Jesus rose, that's why I come out of the water. Jesus is sort of the decoder ring that comes in the cereal box of the Bible and helps us make sense of that stuff. 
But if we're Old Testament people, if we're sitting at the base of this mountain, Moses has been at the top of the mountain for 40 days, and all we hear is the low rumble of God's voice, and little Moses is up there, and nobody's bringing him food, and he's not taking a bath, and it doesn't seem like he's going to sleep, you're starting to wonder, what is all this about? What is God doing? And then when Moses finally comes down, it's not that he has this great war plan for God's people. It's not that he's got this amazing blueprint of the big city that God's building for them, Jerusalem, once they finally get to Canaan. No, God wants his people to make a tent, and then like a really pretty fancy tent, like a tent that's going to require them to give up all of their gold and jewelry. Why would they not make something nicer than a tent with all the stuff that they have? And then on top of that, there's these guys who have to wear these weird clothes. They have to have like a ninja-style headband with a big metal plate, and they've got this weird vest that they wear that nobody else is allowed to touch. And now we read this morning, God's giving them step-by-step instructions on how to make perfume. This is confusing. For the people in the Old Testament, they don't have the decoder ring yet. They don't yet realize what these things are pointing toward. The point is just that they be pointed. That's what God wants them to do, just to orient them a little bit differently. And then if they will follow the way that he's pointed them, they will find the thing that they're looking for, but God is not yet ready to reveal it. This is why the Apostle Paul, in almost every letter that he wrote, speaks to the mystery of the gospel in the Old Testament. What he means by that is people who lived in the Old Testament did not realize exactly what they were participating in. They had no way to know. Only when Jesus arrives does everything tie up and make sense. So if I'm standing at the base of this mountain and Moses is telling me that there has to be a perfect, spotless, sacrificial lamb offered, my logical conclusion is, okay, this is good. We can do this. We have a lot of lambs. We can meet God's expectations. But I'm asking myself, what is God telling me about sacrifices with this lamb? Well, that they have to be spotless, blameless, like I already said to you. But then if I extrapolate that to its logical conclusion, then I'm going, well, The ultimate sacrifice then must be totally perfect, and there's only one being in all of creation who's totally and completely perfect, and it's God. And this is where my brain just absolutely fries if I'm an Old Testament Jew. Because I go, we're killing a sacrifice. The sacrifice has to be blameless. In order to be blameless, eventually it's going to have to be God himself if he's going to fulfill the sacrifice. But God can't die. He already told us that. God is eternal. God can never pay for my sins. And so I just sort of short circuit and don't know what's going on. And I lose the ability to move past that into the fullness of its symbolism. What we understand once Jesus arrives is we now get how one person can be both God and man. And how God can both die and never die. And how God can pay for sin while also being the one who receives that payment for the sin. Jesus wraps these things up. We know how the story ends. And we still don't always make sense of those things, right? We get into Trinitarian theology and we just sort of go, "Uh, I think I'm going to call in sick. And I'll pick it up next week when we talk about fruits of the Spirit. I can do that. Respect, gentleness, that makes sense to me. But God gives us symbols and our right response is that we say thank you to him for those symbols, even if we can't totally grasp them because he's smarter than we are. He's giving us a thing that we would never think up on our own. And any little bit of his eternal plan that we can grasp is amazing. It's worth grasping. So, we finish that today. We finish all of that sort of obscure, wandering the maze of the Old Testament with God, trying to unpack and figure out what is going on in these verses today. And if you have the mental endurance to stick with me, I think you'll find that today's portion of unpacking the symbolism of the Old Testament might be the most meaningful for you so far. So, let's go now to Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. I want to reread part of what Asia read to you, and take a little bit of time to unpack the significance of what God is doing. 
I will remind you, last week we saw what kind of person a priest can be and what process they have to go through to be properly outfitted, what their gear is. Today the question God will answer for us is what does a priest actually do? Let's read. God says, you'll make an altar on which to burn incense, and you'll make it out of acacia wood. A cubit, or about 18 inches, will be how long it is. A cubit, its breadth, so it's about a foot and a half square at the top. And it will be square. Two cubits shall be its height, three feet from the floor. Its horns shall be made of one piece with it, and you will overlay them, excuse me, you'll overlay the whole thing with pure gold, the top around the sides and the horns. And you'll make a molding, or excuse me, a rim, a lip of gold around the edge. And then you'll form two golden rings for it, and you'll put them underneath that lip or that edge on two opposite sides, and they will be holders for poles with which you will carry it. A reminder to you, God is setting this tabernacle up to be mobile. This is evidence of his mercy. He plans to go with his people not only to the edge of Canaan, but the full 40 years of discipline where they will wander the wilderness. His tabernacle will go with them every day. Let's keep reading. He says, you shall make the poles of acacia wood, which is very lightweight, easy to move, and you will overlay them with gold. And you'll put it in front of the veil, and this is technical, so try to visualize this if you can, in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony or the covenant, where I will meet with you. And Aaron will burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he will burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn the incense then, and it will be a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You will not offer unauthorized incense on this altar. You will also not offer a burnt offering or a grain offering, and you will not pour a drink offering out on it. Aaron will make atonement on its horns once a year, and with the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he will make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. So this is not a large altar. It's much smaller than the bronze altar that lives in the courtyard of the tabernacle. And the positioning of this altar is very, very significant, I believe. It's interesting. If you can remember back two weeks ago, we didn't read these verses, but hopefully you did your homework, the way that the layers of curtains function in the temple is really meaningful. The curtains that separate the inner sanctuary from the main sanctuary, because there's three zones in the tabernacle. There's the inner sanctuary, then there's sort of like a room around that, that's the main sanctuary, and then there is a big courtyard that wraps around that building, and that's called the courtyard. And then once you're outside of that, you're no longer considered in the tabernacle. If we start in that central chamber, the curtains that separate that central chamber that function as walls, because this is a mobile tent, those curtains have gold rings at the top and silver rings at the bottom. So if we were to lay them down, gold and then silver, Now, if you move out to the next set of curtains, those curtains have silver rings at the top and bronze rings at the bottom. Lay those down. Okay, so now we're going gold, silver, silver, bronze. And then what do you think the rings at the top of the third curtain are? They're bronze. There's supposed to be, in a sense, an ascending that's happening. As you move into this tabernacle, you are mimicking the movement of God's people up his mountain. The plan that God is giving his people to build the tabernacle mirrors the way that he set up the arrangement for them at Mount Sinai, the place where they are right now while this is happening. God tells Moses at the beginning of these chapters on the law, he says, you need to keep the majority of the people at the bottom of the mountain. They can come near but not too near. That's the tabernacle's courtyard. Then he says, bring Aaron and the elders with him because they haven't appointed priests yet. Bring the people who have a little bit more spiritual significance and they can come partway up the mountain. That's the sanctuary. But only one person gets to pass from the middle of the mountain to the top with God. It's Moses. 
And that's the inner sanctum. That's the holy of holies in the tabernacle. This little altar, one and a half feet by one and a half feet, three feet off the ground, it sits right up against the base of that curtain that separates the holy of holies from the main sanctuary. And what does it do? It produces smoke. It produces a cloud. That is its purpose. In the morning and in the evening, a thick, musty, oily, if you've ever smelled incense burned, it's thick, it's dense, it like gets in your skin, in your hair, and your clothes, like the smell of fajitas at a Mexican restaurant. Similar concept here, okay? It soaks in, and it's enough to fog the air. It represents the cloud through which Moses passed as he left Aaron and the other elders behind and ascended to the pinnacle of the mountain. Even the way that incense is burned, the perfume that God designs, it's not so much the smell, though it does matter. They should follow the recipe. God is implicit about that, explicit about that, excuse me. But what matters is the form here and what it reminds God's people is that there is always a representative. There's always a person who is drawn first from the crowd into the sanctuary, but even among those select few, there is one who is pulled into the inner sanctum to stand before God and make peace. Why do we need peace made with God? Because we're not at peace with God. I don't know if you know that yet. If you're older than 18, your life has probably begun to teach you those kinds of lessons. We are not naturally at peace with anybody. Not our own family, not our coworkers, not the rest of the world, not our society, and certainly not God. We are wired because of our sin nature to want what is good and right, what I should say is actually pleasurable, not even what is good and right, but what feels good, what feels right to us. That's what we want more than anything else. If we're going to have a relationship with God, somebody has to stand before God and plead some kind of case for us. And without a sacrifice made on our behalf, there is actually no evidence that would exonerate us in God's courtroom. It would be a waste of time for someone to go all the way to standing in front of God's throne and pleading on behalf of humanity if there was not previously a sacrifice made, a cost paid. You don't stand before the judge and say, I'm innocent, if you still have outstanding warrants and fines on your head. Those things have to be handled, and then you can go into where the judge is, and they can say, you've done what you should have done. The, case, the charges are dropped. We're at peace again. What this altar of incense is meant to do is remind God's people that they're not just walking behind a curtain into another room, but there is a sense of ascension, of moving from the ground into God's kingdom again, returning to Eden to echo the floor plan of the tabernacle. But what is it for? Verse 7 again. Aaron burns fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he prepares the lamp, so he trims the wicks, refills the oil, and when he sets the lamps back up at twilight, when they've reset the tabernacle after a day of travel, then he burns the incense. Twice a day, the high priest, who is Aaron as long as he is alive, and then eventually his descendants, twice a day he burns incense on the little gold altar. First thing in the morning, last thing before he leaves to go to bed. And the cloud of incense blows around the edges of the curtain, separating the holiest place in the tabernacle when the first sacrifice is made in the morning and as the priests are cleaning their tools and heading to bed at night. This is a major, major focal point of the life of this tabernacle. The altar is only for incense. That's what God explains. Don't try to sacrifice an animal on this little golden table. It's not going to work. Only once a year will anybody even touch this thing with blood so that it can be cleaned with the blood of atonement from the atonement sacrifice. The rest of the year, God's people must only burn the exact recipe of incense that God prescribes at the end of the chapter. That's what verses 34 through 38 are meant to teach us. Now, what's interesting is if you look at those verses, and I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm just going to mention this, and you can dig around online or in your study Bible if you want to, but we don't actually know what some of these spices are. <clears throat> the two that we do know 
are frankincense and myrrh. Where do those show up later in the Bible? At Christmas, right? The gifts that the wise men from the East bring to baby Jesus, why do you think they brought those two things? Not just because they were on clearance at Burlington, they brought them because they understood the significance of who they were going to meet. To them, Jesus was God. They might have been the very first faithful followers of this Jesus in all of human history. Even Jesus' mother and father were not totally sold at this point. We know this because his dad disappears, and a few years later, his mom is standing outside of one of his events telling people he's insane, possessed by a demon, don't listen to him, go home. But these wise men get it. And they bring to this God who has entered into humanity a mixture of the same things that all these thousands of years later, our God has told his people he wants. Hopefully you can get some spiritual significance from that. But here's my two, if I can be a little more practical, takeaways for you today. These chapters, and I'm talking chapter 30 all the way back to about chapter 25, what God is doing, the reason he gives us these prescriptions, these rules, these blueprints, is he is forming us and he is focusing us. So those are the two concepts that I want to interact with in the next couple of minutes until we're done today. What God is communicating to his people is that they need to be ready. They need to be prepared if they're going to enter into worship of him. From the very first day God's people showed up at the base of Mount Sinai, he has shown them, proven to them, that he is dangerously holy. They have to approach him the way that he ought to be approached. They have to make sacrifices. They have to clean and prepare the way so that they can even come into his presence in the first place. He is not a God to be played with, and he seems to think that his people ought to stop worrying about everything else around them and focus solely on him, that that would actually be best for them. That's why this level of detail is appropriate. The mind-consuming, the life-consuming mind life nature of doing each of these things exactly as prescribed is a demonstration to you and I that it's okay if the majority of our hours in a day are focused on worshiping God. That doesn't actually get in the way of other stuff. It's not an inconvenience. It's not something that we have to try to fit in here and there where we can so that God and I stay on good terms. God is giving his people consuming rites and rituals that are driving a lifestyle, not just Sunday morning for a few hours to use the model that many of us have settled for. God also seems to think that if his people will focus on him alone, that nothing could actually be better for them than that. That it would change things back to how they were originally designed to be. That as God calls his people back into focus, as he begins to form them with these rites and rituals and laws, it's not tyranny. He's not domineering or trying to just overcome them or even go to war with them. He is bringing them back into the right order of rule that he built in the first place. He is reversing the curse of sin by bringing creation back under his authority. God is not just giving us a map back to Eden in the tabernacle. He's moving us into a place where he rules us again. He's forming and reforming creation, forming and reforming humanity back into its original order with him at the top and humanity rightly stewarding and caring for creation as his image bearers. You see, rebellion against God is a little bit bigger of a deal than I think a lot of us consider it to be. Wickedness, selfishness, self-seeking, these are not just alternate routes that lead up the same religious mountain to heaven or God or nirvana or wherever you think good people go when they die. To go any way but God's way is a death wish. This explains to us why at the end of each of these sets of parameters, God says, if you make your own incense and try to burn it, you're cut off. If you steal my incense and try to wear it like cologne, you're cut off. If you bring the wrong sacrifice, if you kill the wrong animal, if there's a blemish, you lose your spot in here with us. 
Because if you go another way, you've communicated to God that you'll pick your rules over his. You'll pick your standards over his. This is the story of 2022, right? Pick your poison, choose your own adventure, claim your own truth. God loves his people enough to give them the right way. When God focuses on himself, when he forms us into people who can worship and should worship him, it's not cruel of him. He's not being egotistical. He's being gracious and kind and life-giving to us. And when we as Christians speak about sin as if it is a lifestyle, which we do regularly, I say that to you often, that it leads to self-destruction, we mean that. But when that lifestyle of self-destruction ends and you pass from physical life into eternity, the curse of sin means that God takes over where you left off. If you were working on self-destruction on this side of eternity, God will continue to participate in your destruction on the other side. This is the weight that we bear if we live a life outside of God's rule and plan. God's people have to be ready. They need to be formed by him. They'll never form themselves into the kinds of people who are prepared. Who in a million years could have ever guessed these kinds of rituals? Would you ever have designed a robe with pomegranates and little bells on it? No, you wouldn't have. God is giving us a thing that is specific, packed with meaning and symbolism, but it's also important that we do the thing he said to do, not just spend time studying and analyzing it to try to draw out some hidden meaning. That's the message in the remainder of this chapter, verses 11 through 16, the ransom tax. God is saying, anytime you count your warriors so that you know whether you can win or lose in battle, you will pay a tax to the temple because you will remember that I own those warriors. You don't. So you can come into my property and you can measure my stuff, but you're going to pay a tax to do it. It's the same theme of verses 17 through 21, the washtub. Before you come and make sacrifices, you better wash your hands and your feet. Where you have been and what you have done are significant. So clean them up. I'm giving you the way to clean them. I'm not making this hard on you, but you need to take the steps I've given you before you enter into my presence. And same thing with the anointing oil in 22 through 33. In each instance, God is explaining how his people need to prepare themselves and prepare their offerings. He is forming them and he is focusing them on himself. And they need this. This isn't getting in the way of the purpose of their lives. It is the purpose of their lives. It's the purpose of your life, to be formed by God, to be focused on God alone. Anything else that could possibly draw your attention away is, at best, a distraction. As these people in the Old Testament follow the steps that God has laid out for them, they can hear his voice reminding them, just like he did with the incense, that they're not supposed to count their soldiers or wash their hands and feet or mix or use perfume or cologne in any way that would mock or mimic the way that God has reserved for himself. They form their lives around him. They focus their lives on him. Because when they come into his presence, they really truly come into his presence. And here's the question hanging in the air between us in 2022 and God's people in Exodus 30. Do we really think we're in God's presence? Do we believe, as he says in the New Testament, that someday a day is coming where everything you've ever done will be laid bare? Do you believe that? Every meaningless, empty word that you've spoken or tweeted or posted or thought will be made public knowledge what hope do you have of navigating a reality like that, so different from the reality that we live in now, where we can play games with people and fake it and wear a mask? What hope will you have if God has not formed you into someone different from who you are now? You're not just going to get better because you got older. Maybe that's what you think. Maybe you think wisdom comes with age. Not always. I've known some old, old people who made some bad decisions. Wisdom belongs to the Lord. He who has designed and organized all of creation and as much as we can get back to what we lost, 
That's where we'll find life. When God's people gathered in the Old Testament, as they worked to prepare incense, as they hammered and cut and built altars and hung curtains and prepared sacrifices and cleaned up bowls of crusty blood at the end of the day, the names of God would come to mind for them. Their God was not boring. Their God was central to their entire existence. As they lit candles, as they trimmed wicks, as they threw out last week's bread of the presence and set out fresh loaves on the table, in their head they are remembering names of God like Yahweh, his personal name, shared with Moses in Exodus 3 and 4. Like El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. El Elyon, the God who is most high. Adonai, my master. Jehovah Nisi, my banner. Jehovah Ra, my shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, he that heals. Jehovah Shammah, that God is there, he is present. Jehovah Sidkenu, our righteousness. Jehovah Mekodishkim, the one who sanctifies you. El Olam, the everlasting. Jehovah Jireh, the provider. Jehovah Shalom, our peace. Jehovah Sabaoth, the God of hosts. We call him Jesus. We call him the Christ, the Holy Spirit, Abba, our Father, our God, and we're reading his book. We're reading his plan. We're in his presence. He goes with us as believers everywhere that we are. His spirit is no longer stuck in the inner sanctum. It dwells in us. Exodus 30 is not written for New Covenant Christians to try to rebuild the tabernacle and reinstate the Old Covenant. Exodus 30 is your opportunity today to know God better or not, to engage with him or not, to follow his character, to learn that his will for you is the same as his will for the priests of his tabernacle, to focus on him and to be formed by him. The product that intense formation and single-minded focus produces in New Covenant followers of Jesus is life. It's not death. It's not loss. It's not less of what you want and more stingy, old, dusty rules and regulations. It's life. It's having your inner spirit plugged into God forever that you might live. Here's how 1 Peter said it, and this is where we'll land the plane. I want you to listen for tabernacle imagery all over this passage. 1 Peter 1. Peter said, Therefore, Preparing your minds for action, which is formation, and being sober-minded, which is focus, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't be formed around your old self or around the self that the world wants you to be. But just as he who called you out is holy, you also should be holy in all of your conduct. That's what God's after in this tabernacle system is holiness, set apart, unique steps and regulations because it's written, you'll be holy just as I am. So focus on God, be formed by him. That's how you become like him. Peter says if you'll call on him as father, father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. There's your census tax. Who do you belong to? It's God. It's God. You were not ransomed with perishable things such as silver or gold, but the price paid for you was the precious blood of Jesus. Like that, without a blemish or a spot. Here he is, the final sacrifice. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. That's why God can build a system that echoes who Christ is, even though he hadn't been born as a baby yet. It's all part of God's plan. But he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. God who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that what? Your faith and hope would be in God. That's life. That's what formation and focus brings to you, church. 
That means that you believe your future is going to go well because of Christ, and you are eagerly anticipating that future because of Christ. He's working out front of you where you can't be, and he's promised to get you where he is. That's hope. That's what faith means. That whatever the next decade or the next year or the next month or tomorrow or even later today holds for you, that Jesus holds those things. So you'll be fine. That's focus. That you would choose to spend your time and mental energy on, that you would make your plans around, that you would picture the best future version of yourself as being single-mindedly obsessed with Jesus. That's what this thing is about. Anything less than that is us offering God a consolation prize. He wants all of us. And if you're looking at him, if you're aiming at him, if you're giving him everything that you have and receiving from him everything he has for you, here's the promise that God always keeps. You will experience deeply profound formation. You will change. He will form you. He will mold you. He will remake you. He promises to do it. Remember, Jesus does not want to make you better. He wants to make you brand new. And if you'll come to him, he will do that. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. Truly, truly we love you, God. We are in awe of you. And the mastery of your plan, your, your willingness, God, your ability to, to create and craft symbolism and meaning so that everywhere we go in the Bible, we see echoes or foreshadowing or mentions of Jesus, that it really is all about Jesus. God, may we become people whose lives are in sync with that thing that we say. May we become people who live the thing that we sing about, the thing that we believe to be true, the thing that we want to be true. We can't do the work to make ourselves more loyal to you, God. We need you to do it for us. Would you give us wisdom? Would you put people in our lives to give us wise counsel, God? Would our discipleship process actually lead to real and lasting change? Would you form us? And would we be people who are single-minded, focused only on you? We love you, Father. We trust that you'll do these things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.